0: Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub
1: Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve
0: Yohallam. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we answer a couple of burning questions. First, can an author write a novel about a classical musician and get all the details right? And second, can he make that world the backdrop for a gripping contemporary thriller?
1: If the author is Brendan Slocum, then the answers are yes and yes.
0: Ah, and I am so relieved. I have read so many novels that feature classical music in some way, whether it's the focus of the book or just a passing reference, you know, to a piece of music or a concert or something, where the author just blows it. And I will spare you my rant on the subject, but it drives me nuts because honestly, all it would take is some research and it just feels so lazy.
1: I don't think you're sparing us.
0: (laughs) you're absolutely right. And I'm very sorry. Okay. All of which is to say that when we heard about Brendan's debut novel, The Violin Conspiracy, and then heard that Brendan is a professional violinist, I could not get my hands on his book fast enough. And I was thrilled when he nailed all the details and kept the pages turning.
1: It is a terrific story. The main character is Ray McMillan, a Black concert violinist whose Stradivarius is stolen while he's preparing for one of the most important classical music competitions in the world. And we're not the only ones who love this book. Booklist in their review called it a galvanizing blend of thriller, coming of age drama, and probing portrait of racism. This flawless debut will do for classical music what the Queen's Gambit did for chess. Yeah, not a bad review. No, not at all. Just a few words about Brendan before we get started. Brendan Slocum was raised in Fayetteville, North Carolina and holds a degree in music education with concentrations in violin and viola from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. He's performed with orchestras and chamber groups throughout Northern Virginia, Maryland, and Washington DC and currently serves as the concert master for the Nova Annandale Symphony Orchestra. Brendan has been a public and private school music educator for more than 20 years, and he serves as an educational consultant for the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. The Violin Conspiracy is Brendan's first novel. It was named one of the Seattle Times' most anticipated books of the year and one of Medium's most exciting books of 2022. We started by asking Brendan when and why he started playing the violin. Here's what he said.
2: When I was nine years old in the fifth grade, a wonderful lady by the name of Susan Ellington came around in the elementary schools and said that we are offering lessons on violin, viola, cello and bass. The lessons are free. You just have to rent your instrument. The most enticing part of it to me was not the prospect of playing an instrument, but the fact that we got to get out of class twice a week. So absolutely, I'm signing up for that. A couple of my friends decided they wanted to do it too. It's like, all right, we'll be the three musketeers and we'll do this. And the day came, they decided, now nah, we're not going to do this. <laughs> so I was like, well, you know, I, I have the violin. I may as well go ahead and try it. And it just, it was life changing.
1: And was there something in particular about classical music that spoke to you?
2: Funny thing is, prior to fifth grade with the uh, formal start of the lessons, I had always loved music. I didn't get to hear very much classical music, but music was always always playing in my house. Different types like rock and pop and jazz and soul and everything in between. My siblings and I we were always listening to music. We could sing every song on the radio. And I remember I will never forget the day the first time I heard a classical piece of music. It was Mozart Symphony number no. forty. And that theme, dum da dum, da 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 dum da dum da dum da da. And it just stuck with me. I would hum it all the time. I don't know what it is. Something about it just resonated with me.
0: I kind of have chills right now because I have a similar (laughs) story. (laughs) Wow. Which is when I was in junior, I was always a music theater kid. And when I was in junior high, a teacher of mine, a music teacher said, here, try this piece of music. And he handed me the letter duet from The Marriage of Figaro, also Mozart. Mm -hmm. And I had the same experience. I I, I learned this piece of music. I heard this piece of music and that was it. I was not a music theater kid anymore. I was an opera kid and I just thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard and felt. So, yeah, what is it about Mozart?
2: (laughs) See, that (laughs) gives me chills just hearing that.
1: That's amazing.
0: One of the things I adore about your book is that you get those classical music details right. I mean, obviously, of course you do. It's the world you live in, but it is really rare to see that in fiction. Hmm. So I know why you get the details right, but I'm really curious about how. What was your writing strategy knowing that the majority of your audience wouldn't be intimately familiar with classical music. How did you decide how much detail to include? How did you go about integrating technical details in a way that doesn't feel didactic?
2: You know what? That is a fantastic question. I'm really glad you asked me that. Oh, good. Being a teacher, It was actually pretty easy for me to do because when I teach my students, I have to meet them where they are. It's like, well, you don't know this. You don't know this. You don't know this. I'm going to show you the best way to learn and apply this. So I would use terminology and use words and use imagery. It's like, well, It's like this is a hummingbird jumping from flower to flower and zipping here and there and landing on a cloud. And does that make sense? Oh, yeah, I could see that. Okay, yeah, I think I'm going to include that. Well, how about this? Yeah, you're over my head on that one. I don't know what that means. That's Italian. I don't know what that word is. Okay, so there was a lot of that going on. And I would go back and just edit, edit, edit.
0: Yeah, and it can be so tricky to thread that needle because... On the one hand, you need to explain things to people. On the other hand, you don't want to stop the story to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, now we're going to have a music lesson. It was just so <laughs> skillfully done. I really admire how you were able to do that.
2: Thank you so much.
0: When Ray's violin is stolen, all anybody cares about is that it's a Stradivarius worth $10 million. Mm-hmm. But that is the last thing on Ray's mind. And at one point, Ray looks at his empty violin case and thinks I'm quoting you here the obscenity of its empty mouth gaped back at him its barrenness was impossible, as if water were no longer wet. Can you talk a bit about Ray's relationship to his violin? And I guess yours too, because I'm guessing they're not dissimilar.
2: They are definitely not dissimilar. My violin was actually stolen when I was in high school, and it was just, it was devastating. It truly felt like a piece of my soul was just gone, and I would never get it back. And I remember opening the case and looking in disbelief, closing it, opening it again, hoping to get a different outcome. It must have done that five or six times and it was just disbelief and it just hurt in the story. The violin is what Ray considers his legacy. It's his heritage. It belonged to someone in his family that he would never know, but it was almost as if it was meant to be given to him. It's like pop pop in the story. Okay, I'm going through all of this just so I can make sure that one of my descendants has everything that he needs to have. Everything. It was everything to Ray.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wait, now I need to ask some follow ups about your, about your experience <laughs> as a child. Like, what happened? Did Did you ever catch who stole it? Why did they steal it?
2: We went on a family vacation. I think we went to an amusement park and we decided to stay an extra day. And I was kind of like, I want to go home. Everybody else wanted to stay. So I was outnumbered and we get home. I don't know if you've ever been robbed, but if you walk into your home, you just know the instant you walk in, something is not right. And I made a beeline for where I kept my violin, which was underneath my bed, way in the back, way in the corner, you know, where I was the only one that had access to it. And I looked in and it wasn't there. And I did the the triple take. I, I looked three, four times. I left the room. I came back in. I looked again. Maybe I'm just missing something and it wasn't there. I don't even remember what else was taken from our house, but I just remember that it was gone. And it was my senior year in high school. And this was supposed to be, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to school and learn how to play. And this is going to be fantastic. And oh, no. it was just earth shattering. I had nothing. I felt like I literally had nothing.
1: Oh, no. And what was it like replacing the violin? Or did you get it back? Or did you find yeah. out who took it?
2: My 1953 Eugene Lehman violin is still out there somewhere. So if any <laughs> of your listeners see a 1953 Eugene Lehman, it belongs to me. And I'd love to have it back. <laughs> but, um... I was extremely fortunate that once the word got out with the uh, teachers in the community that my violin had been stolen, a very, very loving patron offered to allow me to use their family violin. I was allowed to use that my four years in college until I graduated, got a job, and I bought my own. And um, I recently bought a... French violin that I still have to get appraised to figure out exactly who the maker is, but it's right around 1750, 1755, somewhere in between there. And I love this instrument and it is never leaving my side ever.
1: (laughs) Uh, Every vacation, you're taking it to Disney World. (laughs) Oh, I don't
2: even take vacations anymore.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if a part of the connection is, is the body, right? You put this thing under your chin. It lives in your against your neck. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost literally physically a part of you.
2: It really is. I mean, this is kind of oh, it's a little bit weird, but I apologize, listeners. It really feels like if I'm away from it from an extended amount of time that there is a part of me that is missing. It's everything. It really is everything to me. It has taken me so many places and gotten me through so many experiences and just given me so many opportunities it really is a part of me yeah
1: all right i'm now gonna reveal the depth of my ignorance about music what (laughs) makes a stradivarius extraordinary and have you ever played one
2: I have not been fortunate enough to play one. I'm going to finish that off with the word yet. That is my goal. If it's playing an open string, I will be able to say I played on the Strad. No one really knows what makes the Strads so unique and gorgeous and perfect. They're as close to perfect as anything could be. I believe scientists, if my research is correct, scientists have determined the only way to really discover what makes a Strad a Strad is to crack one open, destroy it and examine every part of it. But no one's willing to do that. That's
0: not happening. (laughs) (laughs) At least I hope (laughs) that's not
2: happening. (laughs) I hope not either.
0: So after his violin is stolen, Ray doesn't practice for a couple of days until he gets a substitute instrument. Mm -hmm. And then when he finally goes to practice, he thinks, so here's what you do if you're a black guy trying to make it work in an unfamiliar world. You just put your head down and you do the work. You do twice as much work as the white guy sitting next to you and you do it twice as often and you get half as far, but you do it. You just sit down and practice over and over. And eventually someone turns to you and says, wow, you're way better than I expected you to be. And all of those extra hours of practice, they build themselves into the marrow of your bones. They electrify the nerve endings on the tips of your fingers until they become habit. So there are two things I want to ask you about here. One is about the extraordinary discipline of practice that every classical musician undertakes and how it shapes your life and your psyche. And the other is about how practice and what it means is different for Black artists.
2: Wow. Um, I'm going to take the second question first, if you don't mind. Absolutely. I can just speak from my own personal experience. There have been times where, you know, I've done the work, the same amount of work, even more than some of my counterparts. And you just don't get the same results. There's always, well... What's the best way to say this? Um, That was good, but there's always a but. There's always a but. Short story, I played the Messiah a million billion times. I could play the first violin part, the second violin part from memory. I've actually had to do that a couple of times. And um, I will, you know, go to a church that I've played at a million times and there's a director, they will see me come in and immediately call someone else to come and sit next to me because they don't think that I can handle it and you know i just kind of sit there and smile i'm like all right and then the last time this happened the person that was sitting next to me she was a lovely young lady very nice you know she was a college student and she had no clue Mm -hmm. her tone was gorgeous you know very good technique but she didn't know the music i had to kind of guide her along and the performance actually ended up okay but it was not because she was there playing with me it was because i actually helped her out a, a great deal and you know things like that they they happen a lot. And people don't really realize that... I don't want to put it so much in racial terms, but it, it really is. Like for us Black artists, we've got to not only prove ourselves in playing, we've got to prove ourselves just from the moment we step onto the stage. It's everything. It's appearance. It's your dress. It's your demeanor. It's your attitude. Everything. Everything has to be A+. plus. If it's not, your substandard. That's how... At least i have felt in the past i don't want to speak for everyone but that's been my experience and surprisingly i'm not bitter about it i just take it as that's the way it is does that make any sense
0: it does there's so much about the book and what you've said about the book that seems paradoxical to me so on the one hand there's what you just said and then the paradoxical part is that practice itself gives shape and meaning to a musician's life. So it gives shape and meaning to your life. And you've had so much experience with racism and discrimination, despite all of that practice. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, it's holding those two things at the same time.
2: But do you know, all of that practice, I wouldn't trade it for anything, in spite of what the end results are, In someone else's eyes, the practicing, it teaches you so much. You know, I would practice three and a half hours every day, and I did that for four years three and a half hours every single day. And I did that because one, I wanted to get better. Two, I did not want to disappoint my teacher. Three, I felt like I had to. You know, it wasn't even a question of, well, why are you practicing? No, no, no. It's when am I going to go and practice? And Eve, you know, this with practicing and everything, it just, it makes you feel better once you are able to get that run or you're able to, you know, perfect that technique that you've been working so hard for. And then you get to go out and show everyone, yeah, this is what I've done. This is what I'm about.
0: Yeah. And then when you don't do it, you feel kind of itchy.
2: Oh my God. You know, like hair shirt. <laughs> oh, <laughs> kind of yes, absolutely. <laughs>
0: Is there anything from your discipline of practice that you brought to writing?
2: Oh my gosh, absolutely. I had to put myself on a schedule for writing. It was like this time you write this many words, you write for this amount of time. And it was surprisingly easy. I actually had this book written in two and a half months because I was just so into it. And I knew this is what I set my mind to, and I'm going to do this. It was relatively easy to do because I was so accustomed to putting myself on a practice schedule. This was normal for me.
0: Yeah. Mm. Okay. That's yeah. very hard for Julie and me to hear the two and a half month thing, but we're going to try to, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to, try to rise above that.
2: <laughs> yes, sorry.
1: <laughs> I want to ask a follow-up question to something you just said, and you might not be able to answer. But you you said you're not bitter about the racism that you've had to experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts at all about why you're not bitter.
2: I used to be bitter when these things were confronting me just head on. I was bitter. I was just angry, angry, angry. Why is this happening to me? It's not happening to anyone else. I've done the same things that they have. I've gone to the same schools, had the same teachers. It's not fair. But then I had an epiphany. I was like, life is way too short. I I can't do this for other people. I have to do this for me. And if I'm doing it for me, why am I getting mad over something that I'm not going to be able to control? All it's doing is taking away time and energy. And I don't want to do that. And I also realized from talking to a lot of people and having different experiences that if someone views me differently... It's probably not because of something that I've done. It's because of something they don't know. A lot of it is just ignorance. They just don't know. You know, well, we see pictures of you or pictures of people who look like you. We see people like you on the news or we see videos. All you do is you're a rapper, you're a basketball player, you're a football player, you're a criminal. That's what a lot of people see. And you can't really fault people for saying what it is that they see and forming those opinions based on what it is that they've been exposed to. So I view it as, it's not really your fault. How can you fault someone for something that's not really their fault?
1: Mm. that's very generous of you.
2: Yeah, I try. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you have said that music has saved your life. Can you tell us how?
2: 100%. Um, friends that I grew up with are in jail. Friends that I grew up with have unfortunately been killed, you know, lots of run-ins with the police and everything. And I was right there with them. We we all grew up together. You know, we were in the same neighborhoods and everything. And I literally was practicing or in a rehearsal or on a trip. The first time I went to New York was through one of my school music programs. And it was just the best thing in the world. And, you know, my music has taken me across the world. I have visited Asia several times. I've met so many different, interesting people. I've played under amazing conductors and it's all because of my violin. And I know that if I did not have my violin, I honestly would probably be in jail or dead. I probably would.
0: Yeah. So Ray is very lucky to have a wonderful piano teacher, Janice, who supports and mentors him. And you said in your acknowledgments that you had a teacher like Janice yourself. Can you talk about the intimacy and importance of the student-teacher relationship in classical music?
2: Oh, my gosh. I think it is everything. It's 100% everything. This is the person, your teacher, that is shaping you pretty much for the rest of your life, for the rest of your career. Yeah. And there's got to be a level of trust and a level of honesty. And I was blessed to have that teacher. Her name is Dr. Rochelle Vetter Huang. And she changed my life. She taught me everything I know about violin and she taught me everything I know about teaching. To this day, you know, when I email her a writer or whatever, I always end up in tears because I'm just so grateful for her.
0: Yeah. My teacher was Walter Blazer. I feel the same way about him.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: The genesis of the world notwithstanding, there is a stereotype in classical music of the abusive teacher and I'm afraid there is truth to it sometimes. I, you, if you think about the J.K. Simmons character in the movie Whiplash, who mm-hmm. played destructive mind games with his students and threw symbols at their heads. And yes, that movie is about <laughs> jazz. It's not about <laughs> classical music. But that's the classical music teacher stereotype. Yeah. I remember telling my Romanian piano tuner about the movie Whiplash and how outrageous the teacher's behavior was. And Ludwig just kind of looked at me like I was crazy and said, well, how else would you produce a great artist? And I was like, wow. <laughs> you know? But even now, I have a good friend who's a concert pianist and he teaches at a conservatory in Chicago. And mm-hmm. he's had more than one student shrink away from him when he offered a correction because they expected him to hit them based on oh the previous teachers. So <laughs> it's it's crazy, but it's not all that uncommon. I don't think it's the norm, but it's not uncommon. So I'm just wondering if you have thoughts, what is this kind of behavior about? Why do you think it persists?
2: I don't know where that comes from. And You know, I think a lot of us have some experiences with that, and I tried it a couple of times. I was just mean as a snake. Well, that doesn't work, and they're crying, and I'm not happy because (laughs) I just lost a student. So I'm going to try a different approach. I'll try being nice and seeing, you know, what does the student need? Because I've been on the receiving end of that, and it's not fun, not fun at all. So why would I want to put someone else through that? I'm not going to do that. I'll try the nice approach. And for me, that works a lot better. They want to please you then it's like, oh, this person actually cares about me. So let me see if I can do well.
0: Yeah. Not playing from a place of fear.
2: Absolutely.
1: So congratulations, by the way, on launching your new podcast, How Music Can Save Your Life. Can you tell us about it and what you've learned from your guests?
2: Thank you so much. It is so much fun. My first guest was Ken Ford who is a uh, violinist out of Atlanta. And a funny story about that, and I said it on the podcast, my cousin is a photographer in Atlanta. He was taking pictures at one of his concerts and he labeled it king of strings best violinist in the world and I was bitter I was like look wait a minute do you not know me what are you talking about who is this guy that's an awkward thing <laughs> just a little bit and I talked to Ken and in, in the interview and he said something that sticks with me to this day he said play for yourself you started playing or you started singing or you started you know whatever it is that you do because you loved it you enjoyed it. It gave you happiness. Don't do it because you have to please someone do it for yourself. And I thought about that. And I was like, wow, when was the last time I actually played something for myself? Because I liked it. Huh? I'm going to start doing that again. And I did. And it's phenomenal. And you know, you forget sometimes. And because of this podcast, I'm getting just the greatest advice, the greatest advice.
0: I'm trying to think of whether there's another occupation with the same kind of intimacy as being a musician. You know, when Brendan talks about his violin, he says things like, it's a part of me, or it's a part of my soul, and he believes he wouldn't be who he is without it. Every musician I know feels that way. I think there's something about the time it takes and the solitude involved. You know, you start when you're a child before you're fully formed as a person, And then it usually takes about 15 years to become skilled enough to be professional. And all that time, you're practicing hours and hours every single day, mastering technique and alone with your own thoughts, thinking things like, what did the composer mean in this moment? And what do I want to say here? And then there's that one-on-one student-teacher relationship week after week, year after year, just the two of you building an artist.
1: What do you think? Do you think other professions are like this? I think you're right that the fact that you start as a child has to amplify its effect, right? I mean, we're all shaped by our careers, some more than others. I'm thinking of doctors in particular right now. I mean, I assume they grow to see the world differently and interact with others differently as they gain more and more experience in medicine. But they're adults with more than 20 years of being something other than doctor when they start med school. Um there's something else about music too I think if you go on to become a professional musician particularly a classical musician then you've likely probably been designated from very early on as having like a talent and understanding and you know one hopes a passion that others don't seem to have something that sets you apart and in a certain way above which can be very positive but also maybe at times difficult Now I'm thinking of The Queen's Gambit, right? And and chess. Mm -hmm. That is a tremendous book, by the way, in addition to being a great Netflix series. Mm -hmm. The book is written by the same guy, Walter Tevis, who wrote The Hustler and The Color of Money, which were books before they became Paul Newman movies. I'm also reminded, as we talk about this, of professional athletes like Andre Agassi, who also start so young, right? And if you haven't read his memoir, Open, I highly recommend it. I found it riveting. It's actually written by the terrific writer J.R. Moringer, who's the author of The Tender Bar, which is another book I love, which was just adapted into a film that I haven't yet seen, which stars Ben Affleck and is directed by George Clooney. I am so sorry. I have gotten so far afield. But my point is, maybe professional athletes have an experience somewhat akin to musicians. Oh, I think they definitely do but I
0: still think there are some differences. So music is something you can perform your whole life. Whereas most athletes are done by the time they're 40 or even younger, and that has to make a difference. And then you do sports and competition whereas you do music Mm -hmm. in collaboration, right? So uh, there's so much to explore here and we should probably wrap up now or we will go on for hours, (laughs) right? But before we go, we should mention that Brendan has a playlist on his website of the music that inspired The Violin Conspiracy. We'll link to it in our show notes and you should
1: listen. It's good for your soul. Absolutely. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. You can find Brendan at
0: brendanslocum.com, on Instagram at brendan Slocum, and on Twitter at brendan underscore
1: slocum. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at EvieOhallam.com and me at Julie Sternberg.com and check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming.